0: plushcare.com slash loss You're listening to the History Today podcast for October 31st, 2012
1: Our guest this week is Tim Stanley who is Associate Fellow of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford University and whose documentary, Sitcom USA was recently broadcast on BBC2 His article in the November issue of History Today, The Changing Face of the American Family, looks at the way in which the American family has been interpreted through the medium of the sitcom. Tim, it's been an extraordinarily rich scene, the sitcom, in American uh, history, recent American history, at least, anywhere over the last 20 years or so. Why is that? What is it confronted?
2: I think the secret of the sitcom's success is the way it's written and the format in which it's shown. So it runs over very long seasons, it's written by lots of different people, uh, and it is designed to chase ratings. All of which means that it functions a lot like a soap. And like soaps, it has to not only do dramatically what it's supposed to do, which is make people laugh, but it also has to be something that people can recognize themselves in. So sitcoms have been very good at mirroring social changes and trying their best to reflect them. That's what, that, that is what has kept them so popular. And because of that, you can look at Leave it to Beaver in the 1950s, and you can see some reflection of the ideal of the nuclear family. And then you can fast forward to today and watch a show like Modern Family, and you can see a reflection of the far more multiracial, more sexually diverse Uh, more fragmented kind of family structure that we have today. So it's always been a very good barometer of the way people live.
1: And when we go back to those uh, 1950s sitcoms, Leave It to Beaver, you mentioned there. Yeah. One of the points you make, quite an interesting point, I think, is that what we think of as this eternal nuclear family that's always been there in America was actually a fairly recent invention and was essentially an invention of the post-war years
2: understand this properly until I wrote and researched and wrote the article, actually, which is the extent to which the nuclear family appears almost out of the ether in the late 1940s and disappears so quickly in the early 60s. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there weren't people who lived uh, in something like a nuclear unit prior to the 1950s, and it doesn't mean people aren't doing that today. But in terms of it being something that a majority of people do, or a social convention that people do their hardest to follow. It really only happens in the 1950s. And the reason why it happens in the 1950s is because America becomes so rich so quickly that men can afford to have a family, have lots of children, but their wife doesn't have to work. Uh, Rates of divorce aren't very high. You've also not yet got the contraception revolution that comes in in the 60s, which liberates women from having babies. So there is this kind of perfect storm in the 1950s of money and social convention and religion and, of course, the politics of the Cold War that encourages people to follow this ideal of the nuclear family. And lots of people really do genuinely follow it. It's not just that it's a myth that it's an eternal thing, but it's also a bit of a myth that no one really lived by it. Actually, millions of Americans genuinely did live by the strictures of the nuclear family.
1: And when they did that, then that's in the 1950s and early 60s, as you say, as we've become more distanced from that ideal of the nuclear family and the reality of that nuclear family, particularly in American politics, this is played a lot, it's become a theme, almost a fetish of American politics.
2: Yes, I, I think that's true, that presidential candidates and parliamentary and political candidates in general do their best to try and reflect the nuclear family. There is an ideal kind of candidate, and they tend to have 2.4 kids. They tend to have a father who works. Uh, and, I, I, you know, there are many different ways in which women can work without necessarily being a wage earner. Uh, but undeniably, you look at the Romneys and you look at their lifestyle, their wealth, and the fact that Anne Romney has dedicated herself to being a, a homemaker and also someone who works for charity, of course. But you look at that and that is very much a 1950s ideal. There's something very Leave It To Be There about the Romneys.
1: And... Can we look at some of the specific shows that we're talking about there? Some of them very, very famous indeed. What have been the most influential shows in terms of this sitcom revolution that's happened in the United States and this um, dialogue that it's had with the place of the family in the United States?
2: Well, I, I don't want to give the impression that by influence I mean that it necessarily changes anything, but something which people look at, see, reflects their lives... Uh, And that in some way either accelerates or confirms change. I would look at things like The Cosby Show, which in the 1980s was about a Reaganite African-American ideal. The idea that you were almost post-race now and that African-Americans were entering the middle class. And that did reflect a lot of people's lives. And what is so significant about that show is that black and white people watch it uh in in as large a numbers as each other so it's a show which really captures the civil rights ideal uh you might look at something like leave it to beaver or bewitched which are about nuclear family ideals they are usually a comedy center around the home they have a wife who doesn't work or is a homemaker they have a husband who you know goes to the office brings his boss home for dinner and things like that so those are the kinds of shows which confirm conservative ideals and then you can move into the future and look at things like Will and Grace, where you see shows about gay people, you see shows about families which aren't necessarily based around reproduction, families which aren't about a man and a woman, but instead about you know, three or four people, or a group of friends. Uh, you, you really can capture the different kinds of changes through these sorts of sitcoms. Uh, and a, a personal, uh, for me, I think a very significant one probably is Friends which captured that moment in the late 1990s when people have got a large amount of consumer disposable income, when New York is emerging from the misery of the the dinkum crime-ridden years of the 80s and 90s, uh, and it's now becoming somewhere desirable to live again. And you you see a new metropolitan elite emerge. You know, the people in France don't seem to work. And we know they have jobs, but they spend all their time fussing about, uh, in, about a comedy of manners, about, you know, Monica's plans for people or Phoebe being crazy or something. It really catches a moment of prosperity in American history in the late 90s, which now feels so terribly distant. Uh, I just don't think a show like Friends would be made nowadays.
1: And it's also almost exclusively white as well, which is quite significant, I would imagine, It is.
2: All. And uh, if you look at the figures, African Americans did not watch it. It was the number one show in 2000 amongst white viewers but it was was rated the 64th most watched show among black viewers. And instead what many networks did was they took the formula of Friends and they remade it with a black cast and they pitched it directly at black people. So you you can also use Friends to see how in the 1990s black and white audiences move away from the Cosby ideal of everyone watching the same thing and they start to become culturally segregated and to watch their own shows. And that says something sad about the post-civil rights America, which is that while it has desegregated in many ways, it's actually become, it's it stayed segregated in many other ways.
1: One of the most interesting things, I think, about the American sitcom, and I'm particularly now thinking of cartoons which have become quite iconic, such as The Simpsons and South Park, for example, is the way in which they manage to combine essentially very radical satire with actually what is a strangely comforting and uh, conservative view of the world. I think that's possibly also true of modern family as well.
2: Yeah, and, and I think you notice this when you're an outsider watching it. Family Guy is considered very radical in America, and its biggest audience is among males aged 18 to 35. That's its real target group. And a lot of people feel that Family Guy, you know, really pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable. But actually watching it as a British person, it's amazing to me how it's all about the family. It's about uh, a traditional, I don't like the word traditional or orthodox, but I'm going to have to use it because it's easy. It's about a traditional white heterosexual 2.4 family. They go to church every week. Although the show takes the mickey out of God and organized religion all the time, God exists within its universe, and in fact, Jesus moves in with the Griffin family in one episode. Uh, So it's actually, in many ways, a a far more conservative sitcom than the type you might see made in Britain or Europe. But of course, it feels radical to Americans because it's making such outrageous gags about all these things. But what is interesting is that Seth MacFarlane, the creator of the sitcom, even though he is an atheist and a liberal, he cannot break free of the cultural straitjacket of America, which is that which still idealizes the nuclear family. So when he's sitting down and thinking, I'm gonna make a sitcom that people will want to watch, what does he make? He makes a show which is basically leave it to Beaver's formula, a 50-year-old formula, but he just throws in lots of outrageous gags. So that's why I I think those sitcoms feel this strange mix of conservative and liberal.
1: And do you think that's basically a characterization of, of America as a whole anyway?
2: Yeah, absolutely, I think it is. Uh, we're dealing with a country where, you know, roughly 80% of people say they believe in God, where you see a, a great mellowing uh, and more tolerant attitude towards gays and lesbians. Uh, you know, a majority of people now, I think favor um, gay marriage, and I'm sure that eventually it will become passed in most states. But you also see a lot of religious conservatism when it comes to issues like abortion. So basically, it's, it's a mix. It's a mix of different values. And one of the problems with this recent election is that Romney versus Obama has tried to force the country into two groups of either the liberal or the conservative. And the reality is that most people not only live in the middle, but really live in both camps and move between both camps. Because you can, you know, you can be the most devout Christian, but if, you, if your child comes out as gay, or if you know a gay person, then that radically alters, it has to alter, the way in which you think about gay and lesbian people. So basically, really, America is far more complicated than the presidential election suggests.
1: Thank you, Tim. Well, that's very good. It's very nice to know that we can have a history lesson just through watching The Simpsons and South Park and Modern Family. <laughs> um, I shall have to sell this idea to Michael Gove, I suspect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, should... <laughs> yes,
2: I'm sure that... Uh... I'm sure showing sitcoms in history classes uh, would be a very popular idea with Mr Gove. I'm sure he would love that.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, thank you, Tim. Uh, You've certainly convinced us that if we wish to understand modern American history, we get uh, one of the clearest pictures of it through through its sitcoms, and I'm sure that will uh, persist. Thank you very much. That's Tim Stanley. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's all for this episode. You can read Tim Stanley's piece the changing face of the American family, in our November issue, which is out now. Also in the November issue, Clive Emsley looks at how the British army punished its own soldiers during World War I. Ian Mortimer makes the case for Edward III as one of England's greatest monarchs. Yianesh Kudaisia recalls the Sino-Indian conflict of 1962, and Michael Mullerian revisits Emperor Constantine's victory at Verona. You can buy the November issue in shops or else get it for your iPad, Kindle Fire or Android tablet by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash app. And you can also listen to earlier podcasts or comment on anything you've heard by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast.